This is the Rebel Author Podcast, where we talk about books, business, and occasionally bad words. Hello, Rebels, and welcome back to the Rebel Author Podcast, episode 37. Today, I'm talking to Mallory Cooper all about how to write transgender characters and also how to build universes. Because it's a mixed topic this week, and usually I only have one topic per episode, I'm going to put the timestamps in the show notes for the start of each topic. But first, to last week's question. So, okay, awkward, don't really know what happened, but I clearly forgot to post uh, the question in my Facebook group and all of those lovely places, so we're going to move on past that and um, head straight into this week's question, which is, do you write series books or standalone books? And whichever one you do, tell me why. This week's book recommendation is a book from one of my patrons that I had the pleasure of reading and loving. It's called The Necromancer's Apprentice and it is by Icy Sedgwick. And the tagline is magic, mayhem and mummies. And it's this wonderfully built underground sort of dark fantasy. Uh, obviously, necromancy is in there, uh, but you know, magic and potions and oh, it was fantastic. And I brought uh, both it. I think I actually have it in ebook and paperback, but um, I also brought the second one and I know that she is working on the third one. So yes, the first one I believe is only 99p on ebook as well. So highly recommend you go and get that. So in personal news, wow, it feels like a literal lifetime since I did this podcast. And that is both mentally and physically. Obviously, as you know, I moved house and that was why there were no intro notes on last week's podcast. And, um, but basically that just, I mean, we, we, we have obviously moved physically location wise, but, um, mentally also, I feel like, you know, I really did have a break, although it was the least restful break I have ever had. Uh, I do feel like I have had a break from this and it feels like I didn't, I haven't podcast in absolutely ages. So yeah, it's really nice to be back and it's nice to know that I missed it. And therefore, obviously, you know, doing this podcast is something that I adore and that's, it's always nice to have that reaffirmed, I think. So in the last couple of weeks, 10 days, I have obviously moved, as I've mentioned, and we ripped off what I can only describe as moldy puke coloured wallpaper from our walls. We stripped them, we filled about a gazillion different holes in the walls. God knows what the previous owners were doing, but there were a lot of bloody holes in the walls. Uh, Then we sanded, we primed, and then finally, after a a week of being in the house, we painted the walls. We've gone for a very nice um, colour throughout the house, just with a couple of patches of something else. And yes, so I think it was a full, it was over a full week before we had a sofa to sit on. We didn't actually sit down for over a week. We were either working or sleeping. Uh, So I am exhausted. It was not (laughs) a break in any way. And I have 
so much to do this week so i am gonna actually have to take some time off at some point just to rest but when that will be i don't know because another a fuckload to do so we are still on lockdown and today is actually day one of me coming back to work after the the move and uh, i forgot <laughs> how hard it is to work when you have a little one in the house and uh, yeah, still on lockdown because unfortunately, because we've moved, the new area won't accept my son into the school until September. So he is off school now until September and there's nothing I can do about it, which is very tricky for work productivity. But anyway, soldier on and all that. So this week I will be working on, I've got um, a couple of books that I am collaborating with Jay Thorne on, uh, they're non-fiction books and I, I won't say much more than that at the moment, but they have to be done by the end of the month. So I will be working furiously hard to get those done this week. And then after that, July will see me do a variety of things. I will be working on finishing the Anatomy of Prose companion course. I will be working on Trey, uh, my fiction book, and also building the audio booth so I can start recording the audio of the anatomy of prose so that that is my next couple of weeks okay listener rebel of the week this week is another patron Amy Sund Amy says, when I was in my junior year of high school, that's the 11th year of school in the US, I wasn't chosen to be on the varsity soccer team, call that's easy for me to say, because I wasn't one of the chosen pets of the coach. He apologised to me after the team listing, citing whatever bullshit reasons he had, and I just took it and went on my way. I was accepted onto the field hockey team later that week, never having played before, and went on to play the varsity squad later in the same season. Then, four years later, I was on a third year abroad in Dublin, Ireland. I made the university soccer team as a foreigner, playing alongside Ireland national team players. Believe me, I gave that coach many middle finger emojis from across the ocean when I made that team. I always thought it terribly ironic that I was good enough to play with national players on a university team in Europe, but not good enough for a high school varsity team in the US. And she is still actually playing 25 years later, so you cannot keep her down. Go you, love the rebellion. It's a massive fuck you to the coach. Any, I love the, the, the rebellions that um, when you show somebody who told you you couldn't do something that you really fucking can. So yeah, absolutely love it. And... We are a little low on rebellions, so please do send in your rebel stories. They can be any kind of rebellion, big, small, or somewhere in between. You can email your rebel story to rebelauthorpodcast at gmail.com or tweet me at rebelauthorpod. There are no new patrons this week, but I wanted to say a huge thank you to all my current patrons who help to not only keep the podcast running, but as always, you make me feel like what I do is worthwhile. So thank you guys. As I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, uh, I have hit the first goal on Patreon, and now that I've settled into the house, well, 
sort of. I still don't have my infamous rainbow bookshelf up yet or or a finished office, but uh, I'm settled enough that I have a desk and a computer and the internet. So this girl shall work. And I'll be organising the slightly delayed exclusive Patreon only Q&A session. If you would like to support the show and get access to all of the bonus essays, posts and content, you can from as little as $2 a month by visiting patreon.com forward slash Sasha Black and that's Sasha with a C and not an S. This week's episode is sponsored by Kobo, so I will play a short word from the sponsor and then we shall get on with the show. Hi, I'm Stephanie. And I'm Tara. And we're from Kobo Writing Life. Kobo's free, fast and easy self-publishing platform. KWL was built by authors for authors, and our team of dedicated book lovers is always working hard to help authors reach new readers around the world. We wanted to tell you a little about Kobo's global reach. From our home base here in Toronto, we work hard to keep customers reading all over the world. And as a KWL author, you're doing your part too. Here are some tips that can help your books stand out globally. At Kobo Writing Life, you can set the price in 16 currencies. When you're pricing your book, you should consider how your prices are being shown globally in our store. Is your $5.99 USD price showing as $4.69 in British pounds? Chances are an offered price will likely dissuade the purchase of your book. Make sure you are manually setting the price in all currencies. Speaking of all the worldly currencies, you can also set price promotions with KWL that are currency specific. Want to honor Canada Day with a promotion? You can do that in Canadian dollars and leave your other prices just as they are. And we haven't even mentioned all the partner stores Kobo has around the world. Did you know that you can target your marketing to our partners directly? If you want to learn more about this or any aspects of KWL, check out the Kobo Writing Life podcast, available wherever you get your podcasts. You'll find us on social. You can create your free account today at kobo.com slash writinglife. We hope to see your books on Kobo very soon. Happy writing! Hello and welcome back to the Rebel Author Podcast. Today I am joined by Mallory Cooper. Mallory likes to think of herself as a dreamer and a wanderer, yet her feet are firmly grounded in reality. A 20-year software development veteran, Mallory eventually climbed the ladder to the position of software architect and CTO, where she gained a wealth of experience managing complex systems and large groups of people. Her experiences there translated well into the realm of science fiction. A rare extrovert writer, she loves to hang out with readers. We're going to be talking about that. And people in general. If you meet her at a convention, she just might be rocking a cat suit, cosplaying one of her own characters. She shares a home with her brilliant young girl, her wonderful wife, who also writes, a cat that chirps at birds, I'm definitely going to ask you about that, and a never-ending list of things she would like to build and ideas. Welcome! Thanks for having me. You are most welcome. So, um, a cat that chirps, tell me about the cat. <laughs> right, it's always about the cats, isn't it? Um... So her name's Stormfly, which is named after one of the um, the dragons from How I Trained uh, or How to Train Your Dragon. Um, so as you can imagine, my daughter named her, and she just whenever she sees birds, she literally starts chirping at them. She's trying to mimic their sounds. That's amazing. Um, I've never I've had a lot of cats over the years, and I've heard them like make all sorts of noises at birds, but I've never heard them like literally chirp at mm. birds. And sometimes she's not that good at, but sometimes she actually gets some pretty good chirps out for a cat who theoretically shouldn't be able to chirp 
that's crazy i used to have a cat who thought it was a dog and would regularly um growl at the postman and i don't know if it's just me and uh the cats that i get but i then had a second cat who also thought it was a dog and would play fetch literally would pay play fetch and she would also give me her paw she'd sit on command and she'd wow. like yeah and like it was crazy we I, I mean i literally trained her because she was so dog-like but um yes anyway i i am crazy cat woman so that's i had oh, to yeah, ask we, about the cat <laughs> we are this cat is one of those cats that cannot be picked up she hates being picked up and everything so she's very cat-like yeah yeah and- what happens to chirping birds <laughs> i love it and and so if she doesn't like being uh, picked up she must also think that humans are the scum of the earth which is the thing i love most about cats because they just look yeah, down their nose at us yeah we basically exist just to, to hand to give her food she literally screams at us when she wants her her bowl filled she's just like at the top of her lungs just sitting by her bowl just just shrieking you'd think someone had just stabbed her or broken her tail or something like that she's insane that's amazing and i love her for that's one of the things i love about her like this is the most cat like a cat yeah <laughs> oh i love it I, I i would actually probably spend the whole podcast talking about cats so i won't i will move on um tell everyone a little bit more about your writing journey and how you got to where you are now so i published my first book indie in 2012 and that was after trying the whole trad pub thing and realizing because back then like the etiquette back in like the, the late aughts and whatnot that I was taught was that you shouldn't be querying the same book to a whole bunch of agents at the same time. And so I queried it to a couple of different agents and then one liked it and kind of sat on it for a couple of months and another one liked it and sat on it for nine months and whatnot. I'm like, it's going to take me five to 10 years just to get an agent, let alone get this first book out. I'm like, I'm going to die before I like finish writing this series I'm trying to produce. So at that point, I, that was actually kind of the thing. I'm like, this is so inefficient a process that I can't bring myself to use it anymore. So I ended up self-publishing my first book. And that was actually after my wife had self-published one of her books um, and had come to largely the same conclusion uh, that I had. And um, I did four books between then and 2016. And then things started to take off. And I went full-time January 1st, 2017. And since then have written 91 novels. <laughs> I I just I, I knew this already because I'd heard heard you speak on another podcast. But still, when somebody tells me they've written that number of novels, I can't help but giggle just in like like abject horror and like jealousy <laughs> and just like amazement at how you've done that uh, in basically no time at all. So, um, yeah, I, I like I'm just going to go completely off topic. But how do you write so fast? Um, so I don't write fast. I'm actually really slow writer i'm in a number of different sprint groups and i regularly clock the lowest um, word counts per sprint i just do it all day okay so, so people always say like how do you do it I'm like i put my butt in the chair and i write until i'm done and they're like no no what's your secret i'm like i literally just don't get up ever so <laughs> how, how how do you manage like you know because i would love to um be able to write for more hours than I do, but I find I don't, maybe I'm just making excuses. But there's so much admin involved in running a business and all the marketing stuff. And I I have some author friends I talk with that sometimes will tell me they did admin for an entire day, and I'm like, I'm a six halfway through six figure author, and I have 92 books, and I spend maybe a day on admin a month. But my, when I say admin, I include things like mailing list, email, setting up ads. Um, yeah. I'm including those things too. 
What? I don't understand. Oh well, clearly I need to cut some shit out. <laughs> I guess I should I should I should qualify this with the fact that my wife does most of the business stuff, so taxes and all that sort of thing. She does all of that, so I don't I don't have those things on my plate. But yeah, I mean I'm looking at my ads and I'm doing. Uh, we do um, two newsletters a month, or sorry, two two newsletters a week, um, and all sorts of things like that. And it doesn't actually take that long. I think because um, I I tend to chase shiny objects a lot. That's sort of mm-hmm. something I love to do. But I've also sort of set this goal in my mind that I want to write all these books. And mm-hmm. I know that if I chase shiny objects and let myself get distracted, I, I won't be able to do it. And you know the 80-20 rule, of course, right? Mm-hmm. Pareto, yeah. Yeah. And so, so, so much of that admin stuff, that 80, 80% of the work you're doing is, is not, is only generating 20% of your revenue and that's all that admin stuff people get chewed up with. So I just, I just don't do it. Yeah. I, um, no, no, I, no, but I love it. I love the challenge because I will go away and I will look at what I'm doing just because you challenged me. So Mm -hmm. I, you know, I'm not afraid of being challenged. And that's actually one of the, one of the things I love about this podcast, because everybody will make me look at something in a new light after I've spoken to them. Um, I, yeah, I mean, I'm laughing. I'm sat here kind of giggling in horror because I, today is a prime example. I, my only task I had to do today was write a mailing list email, just one, just one email. And it took me all day. And, and part of that is because I have a six year old and obviously we are in the middle of lockdown. Yeah. And so the morning was taken up with school and then, and then it was 5,000 interruptions. Uh, But you know, and then I needed a reader magnet thing and then that needed a bloody PDF link and I didn't have the software and oh my God. So just, it just spiraled into a whole day. And I was like, how is this possible that all I had to do was one task? I got it done, but it took all fucking day and then I had to use three different computers and oh my god anyway anyway I suppose, I suppose I should I should qualify my statement with the fact that like I've I've set up so much stuff and have so much process in place now that it is smoother than I think it might be for someone like for example you mentioned you have to get a reader magnet in place I've already got lots of reader magnets up I have all sorts of things in place I have all sorts of all these all the tools are refined and honed down so I would probably say that back when I first started I probably spent a lot more time on admin mm. work but but now I've, I've filtered out the things that I didn't think we're producing. Yeah, and I and I think that's um, a really good point because some of this is about. Pro- I'm la- I'm in the launch process, so it's a new reader yeah. magnet. So yeah, and so, but anyway, I still agree with what you're saying and think I ought to go and review what I'm doing to see if I can yeah. cr- cut some crap out. Um, okay, so we're here to talk about two things: transgender mm-hmm. characters and universe building. So let's start with characters. If somebody wanted to write a trans character, where do they start and what should they take into account? Okay, well, that's a massive question. I guess for your viewers, or I mean, for your listeners, I should say, specifically not viewers, I'm, I'm trans myself. So that's, um, that's why I, don't, I might not sound quite right. And that's actually an interesting thing to think about when you're writing a trans character is that um, a lot of trans people never transitions so well that you can't tell after you get to know them and that caught and and even if even if they do they always worry that they haven't so there's always some amount of of self-doubt in a trans person's mind um about how they're presenting and if people are understanding them the way they wish to be understood so i think that if you're if, if you're writing from a trans person's pov you really need to capture you need to understand what dysphoria is and really capture that 
Um, if you're not writing from a trans person's POV, this, this particular topic might not come up, but if it is a very central thing to all trans people is this worry about how they want to be perceived versus how they fear society is perceiving them. Mm. Um, I don't think it's possible to get away from that. Then on top of that, there are so many different types of trans people. It's a really broad term that describes anyone who just doesn't see themselves as fitting really within the gender binary. I'm not sure your listeners familiar with these topics or should I? You know? um, well, I so I'm, I am a lesbian. So I, I have had topics on uh, LGBT. Uh, I'm trying to think what I did. I think I did L, uh, diverse characters. Um, okay. So I don't. I don't know. It's, we probably okay. should explain them just in case. Sure. All right. So one thing I should mention as well, because like, I feel like this sort of education is good, is that the word cis is a Latin prefix for on the same side, and trans is a Latin prefix for on the opposite side. Cis has been used in biological circles to describe um, creatures who do not trans change gender, because some creatures literally do change gender, like in all the possible ways that you can imagine. Um, and so there are so so cis came about in the 1950s actually to describe a term as a term described creatures who uh, who had not changed gender who were the gender that they were that they started out at birth, um, which which is sort of a, a I just bring up because some people get triggered by the word cis and I'm like this is not uses I mean some people can use anything as an insult but generally it's not used as an insult it's just a way to describe people who are not trans, um, and of course so in the in the biological sense humans really only have two predominant genders it's a spectrum. With only two, with only two ends, there's not like a, a third gender that can reproduce with one of the two other genders or anything like that. That sort of thing does exist in nature. There are creatures like that that have multiple genders, and only certain ones can pair up and reproduce and stuff like that. But uh, but humans are not those. We only have a a single um, dimension spectrum. But what and and some people do identify very clearly on one end of the spectrum, but a lot of people don't. And so I'm what's called uh, a binary trans woman, where I identify. I was born um, assigned male at birth, and I I have um, I I've, I believe that I'm a woman. And it sounds so silly when you say that. Sometimes I stumble over the words because I'm like, I even now I have trouble saying I am a woman because I feel like some people might be judging me for that. So I, but I don't like to say I identify as a woman because that sort of like invalidates what I believe that I am. It's not a thing that I identify as. It's a thing that I am intrinsically. Just like no cis person would say, I identify as male, they would say, I am male or I am female. So there's all these little hangups. I was just about to say, these are really important, um, you know, aspects for people to understand if they are trying to write from a trans person's point of view, because these yeah. are things that in speech and dialogue would actually be extremely important for authenticity. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, and even the fact that like, I misgender myself sometimes, like if you really want to make an authentic trans person experience, you'd have them misgender themselves and then feel like crap afterwards because they're like, because it's always, everybody's always doubting their authenticity. Um, and I think, I think that happens with everybody. Every, there are, there's no person out there that's so com, um, confident in themselves. Maybe there's like one or two. I've never met them, but they might exist. Narcissists. So yeah, pure narcissists <laughs> probably are like this. Who like, but anybody who has any sort of measure of self-introspection and ability to look at themselves and say, maybe I'm not what I thought I was, um, you know, should should have some measure of self-doubt. The problem with trans people is it's not very it's not easy for us to hide the thing that we have self-doubt about. Like even, um, you know, yourself, a woman who's lesbian or a gay person or something like that, you can go down the street solo, um, maybe depending on how, how um, you might present, but it's possible for you to be who you are authentically um, in your sexual preference, but have no one know. I can. My wife cannot. Okay. 
So is, yeah. Is she trans? No, she's not. Oh. But um, she just she's she just presents slightly more masculine than I do. Okay. Um, and so she she's also a teacher and she's had students say, oh, sir, excuse me, sir, to her. Right. So yeah. so and so she can occasionally get, um, you know, misgendered. And I think it's hilarious because she definitely looks like a woman to me. But, you know, yeah. Um, yeah, so that is something that she definitely experiences. But interestingly, I never have, which I also think is odd because, um, you know, I don't wear dresses i don't really wear makeup i've got shaved right. part of my head is shaved um but yeah i mean i don't so yeah anyway anyway yeah i mean you, you strike me as a person who looks a little bit on the on the queer spectrum somewhere yeah I, I absolutely but maybe i have a better queer diary than other people do like um but so it's an, so I mean, that, that's not to say that I mean I actually one of the things I think that um that trans people share a really good a really really similar experience people who are overweight um because society has has a tendency there's like two the people you can in a lot of societal circles and that's overweight people and trans people um and and neither of us can really hide what we are i mean some some people can some trans people uh can but for example i just can't get i don't have the voice right yet and even still i'm like if i'm wearing heels i'm like a six foot four you know so relatively wide-shouldered woman like it doesn't take a lot to figure out that i'm trans um especially from the wrong angle when you see my giant schnoz or something like that so it's um where I was going with all of this is that there is always some amount of doubt in your own authenticity and, and you can trigger your, even yourself by saying things that will cause you to doubt your own authenticity. So it's, I feel like if you're writing from a trans person's POV, I mean, if the book's not about them being trans, then maybe you wouldn't have a lot of that. But if you, but I think you would still have to, you would have to have them slip up every now and then, or have someone else maybe slip up and have them have to deal with um, their feelings about that. Cause then you start to doubt things. You're like, I, I mean, I'm sure you've experienced this where you had, a, had someone who was a friend of yours who maybe said something that was a little bit um, homophobic. And you're like, gee, I thought this person was like on my team. Mm -hmm. you know, I've actually lost outside. friends. So, yeah. 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 I, have, I have too because I've had people that I thought were like totally on board with this. And they told me that they thought it was just a lifestyle choice. I'm like, what lunatic would pick this as a lifestyle choice? Like, you must obviously think I'm a crazy person because no one would choose to do this as a lifestyle choice. It's like... That sounds like I'm going to wear a baseball cap today sort of thing. Like, no, this is like I'm going to deliberately choose to like lose friends and have a large portion of the population hate me and make every day more difficult. You know, why would anyone choose that? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, so that's that's caused problems, too. Um, so I like so I guess that's oh, the other thing I was going to mention, too, is that um, there are trans people, trans, there are trans people who have dysphoria, which is for, I, I have dysphoria where I actually um, like if I'm forced to look at my body luckily it doesn't actually look fully male anymore which is fantastic but when i first started my transition when i still had body hair and my fat distribution on my body hadn't started to change or anything like that if i had to look at myself naked i'd be on the floor crying um it was just it was it was inevitable um which is when i had to do laser treatments and shave myself it was like the most dreaded experience of my entire life um but some people trans people don't have dysphoria i personally don't understand how that works because I'm kind of like, I would never do this if I didn't have dysphoria because um, it's so freaking hard, even though like, I guess I would always feel like a woman, but I think I might be more comfortable to present masculine if I needed to in certain situations just to make my life easier. But once you understand, once you sort of begin to transition and you understand what it's like to be out in the world the way you want to be, having to switch back is excruciating because mm. it'd be like lying 
to everyone around yourself all the time and it just feels terrible um, and you feel like you're a failure the whole time too um, I'm sure that 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 um, people who of all stripes who have to go who have to go back in the closet to feel like that they feel like you feel like you've failed yourself because you're like I came out and I did this thing and now I'm basically having to hide it again and and that triggers shame cycles and all sorts of terrible things so here's a, t a slight tangent side question as sure. as a lesbian woman I have to come out all of the time. So people think that you come out once when you're 16 or 30 or 50 or however old you are when you come out that, that one time. And people assume that that's the only time you come out. But um, for, for me, every single time I meet a new person or I when I am speaking when I used to work full-time um, I every time I would change departments I'd have to come out all over again because you know you can you can be fine in general conversation for a while and then it turns to partners or husbands wives whatever and eventually you have to say the thing that you, you're afraid of being judged for um, yeah. so is that some excuse me is that something that you experience as well or um i'm kind of because because my voice isn't great um i can i i feel like and people have told me that um physically i pass very well as female um and that that i don't like there are there are certainly i it's, it's tr tr tricky to say this sort of thing but like, there are women who look more masculine than i than i do um some of it depends on my makeup and my hair and what i'm wearing and stuff like that because you can you know, trans women get really good at understanding how to play all these different things to make themselves look the way they want. It's like a special skill that we have. We're all actors in a way because <laughs> we've been given this body that doesn't fit the role we're trying to play. Um, but um, so even things like that, you, the wording sometimes when you try and word things like that, you're like, is this invalidating wording I just chose to describe myself? Um, this may be getting deeper on this particular question than you want to get. But um, I don't have to come out all the time because people figure it out pretty quickly. But I do sort of worry about outing myself. Like, there's one time it still stands in my mind really strongly. In our town, there's a cobbler. I know we have a cobbler. It's amazing. I love the fact that if you get a pair of shoes are broken, you can go to this guy and he'll fix them. I swear it's a front for the Russian mob because the guy has the <laughs> biggest Russian accent you've ever seen. <laughs> um, and I'm like, how does this guy keep his pay his rent as a cobbler? Like, how is this even a thing? Um, because he's got this tiny little hole in the wall placed right in the middle of downtown, though. So it's got to be a little bit expensive to be there. And, I mean, you, you can get a pair of shoes repaired for, for they'll take him like a couple of days for $20. Like, how is this guy paying rent? But anyway, I go in there and there's the Russian guy and I'm waiting in line. And I'm like, I, I think I look pretty fetched that day. And I'm like, the minute I open my mouth, he's going to know I'm trans. He's going to think I'm, a, uh, you know, an AFAB woman until I open my mouth. And then he's going to think I'm trans and then he'll treat me differently. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a little bit different in context, but it does, it does happen all the time where you, you, yeah, you have to deal with that sort of with, with maybe not like the whole event cause you're not telling a whole lot of people at once, but there's, yeah, there's this ongoing sort of scenario where you're like, maybe I could just avoid the situation, not have to go through this again right now kind of thought process you have. Hmm. Um, are there any cliches that uh, writers should avoid or perhaps um, things that might be deemed offensive or any areas that they really ought to avoid writing? Well, I think um, it's a bit of a minefield. I don't even touch about non-binary trans people at all. That's a whole other group of group of people um, who, who don't fit either one. But I guess um, some non-binary people don't really like, they, they have trouble with the fact that they feel like 
um, only binary trans people get to be viewed as authentic. So they're like, I'm, I'm transitioning away from so from female, but not to male. In, in some, that's actually very common. It's much more common for women to transition away from being female to a little bit trans mask, but not actually wanting to identify as male. It's probably why a lot of lesbian women um, end up people thinking they're trans because a lot of times they end up kind of having the same general aesthetic as non-binary people like that. Um, which I guess is to say that you don't want to. There's there's a thing out there called what are called true scum or trans medicalists. And those are people that believe that you have to medically transition to be a valid trans person. And um, it might be wise for someone who want to write a trans person to be as open as possible and sort of say, like, anyone's journey is okay. And and it's not up to the author to to gatekeep who can be trans and who can't be trans. Um, and that's because I feel like I feel like we don't none of us really know enough about any of this stuff yet to even categorize things at the level of saying who can be one thing or not. We're all just like we're not normal. That's all we really kind of know for sure in this world. Um, I think most of the other stuff are things like um, are terms like tranny is like one of those words that I can use and you can't kind of thing. <laughs> um, it's it's like the word queer. You know, we're trying to reclaim the word queer, but you don't. But straight people can't really use the word queer yet. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And and tranny's one of those words too. Um, where it's just probably just better a word to avoid. And then to understand the difference between a transvestite, which is a person who identifies as male but wears female clothing, versus a transgender person, who is a person who believes they are are transgender. Ironically, there's no there's no female version of transvestite. I've always thought I found that to be a really interesting societal thing. Oh yeah. I never even wear, Yeah, women can wear men's clothes and they're not transvestites, but if a woman if a man wears women's clothes, they're a transvestite. Huh. That's because of the patriarchy. It's because it's considered to be less to be a woman. And so it's a notable thing. Whereas if a woman wears man's clothes while she's stepping up. Mm. You know. um, so that was another tangent. I'm very tangential today. I apologize. No, it, no it's fine. I'm sorry. And it's also me because I'm asking so many questions. And I just had a really good question and it's um, completely slipped out of my mind. Oh, no. What was I going to say? Transvestites, male clothing. Oh, oh, no. It was a tangent. <laughs> I was just going to say I that. I think research in this, you know, if you're going to write a character, um, regardless of the diverse aspect of that character, that is not uh, the in the same, it does not have the same diverse aspects as yourself, as the author, mm -hmm. then research is really important. So um, I, that's why I loved the thing that you mentioned about uh, words there, because, for example, um, uh, Dyke used to be a very um, well-used word. So I have a lesbian friend who's in her 50s, and for her, she uses dyke all the time. For yeah. me, as a millennial, I actually find the word dyke a bit offensive. So there are things that can be generational as well, which is why it's so important to talk to um, you know lots of people in whatever diverse arena um, they, they come from uh, so that you can get those authentic perspectives and also understand any yeah. generational difference or even geographical differences as well. Yeah. Um, I was going to say, actually, on the West Coast of the United States, if you use the word dyke, you could be in trouble. And in Boston, every, well, not, we won't have it this year, but every year we have a thing called the dyke run. Ooh. You know, that's amazing. Like all, all, all the dykes get together and we all, I mean, I've not got, this was going to be my first year I got to participate, but it's a 5K for dykes that all happens in, in June. But you can't even use that word in the West Coast of the United States. So it's, it's, it's kind of an interesting sort of thing. And, and even, Things like um, in Portland, which is like ultra progressive in the United States, there are no lesbian bars, but in Dallas, Texas, there are. 
Ah, that's fascinating. There's, there's some fun little things like that. And a lot of there's a lot of cultural things and, and whatnot that, um, that could be fun to research and like lose yourself in understanding that stuff. But um, amazing. Yeah, I think, I think possibly I had one other piece of advice. It might be that I don't think like even being a trans person myself, I would have a very hard time writing about a female to male trans character. Um, because I don't understand what growing up female is like the way a, a, you know a, um, an AFAB uh, AFAB means assigned female at birth and AMAB means assigned male at birth. It's sort of the term that we we use in the transgender community to not sort of have to describe a person's biology all the time because because some people some people don't want to say well they would say well I never was female or I never was male so it's sort of to say well this is your your birth assignment is what we refer to it as but um but I don't know what it's like to grow up being socialized as a girl and to go through something like getting my first period in high school when I'm 12 years old or something like that like I don't have those experiences so for me to write female to male transition there's so much that I don't understand that I I just don't know if I can get it right um and so I, I feel like it, it may be difficult for someone who's not trans to try and write the opposite gender transitioning to their gender it's like it's like one of the things like where where um, trans women I feel and trans men to an extent as well have like this unique perspective in that especially like folks like myself you know um, blonde hair blue eyes six foot tall white male in North America you know I'm like top of the heap and and I have a I'm, I'm relatively attractive person I'm symmetrical you know I'm not overweight um, I'm smart and I can convince people of things and arguments really well. Like I'm well-spoken. Like I basically played life on easy mode. Um, and it was impossible for me to understand what being marginalized was actually like. Like I just simply could not conceive of it. Um, not until suddenly I'd be, I, I realized that I had, I had gone down the ladder a few rungs. Could I actually understand what if, if someone says that the, that the world is stacked against them to say, maybe it is actually kind of stacked up against them. But I feel like in the same way, it'd be, it'd be very difficult for, for me to write a uh, female to male trans person, just because there's, I just, there's a, there's a, I recognize that there's a lot of perspective I don't have to, to be able to do that. Um, okay. So I had a question from a patron uh, who asked, how do you introduce a trans character? Well, I kind of, in a way, I'm cheating in that I'm writing a far future science fiction. Um, and I'm writing some far future science fiction at the point where you could change genders fully surgically, even on the chromosome level. Like they could actually swap you from XX to XY in an afternoon. Um, so for them, it's actually very common for people to change genders, even to effectively change species. There are people who don't look human at all anymore. Um, and... I guess what, what I do is I actually have, to, I sort of wrote the way I want it to be. So I wrote it super casually, like where it's just like this person is now a girl. And I, I always sort of introduce it subtly um, where there's like their, they, their hair is long and pink. Uh, I know it's a little bit stereotypical, but I'm, I recognize I'm writing to a modern audience as well. Um, you know, whereas maybe before they had short black hair, you know, or, or maybe mention the fact they have breasts that might be like a giveaway or something like that. Um, something like really casual that we, or the modern reader will typically identify with a, with a gender opposite of what they had. But I actually never use the word transgender, transsexual, lesbian, gay, or anything. Those words don't appear in my books at all. Um, it's just people getting, people are just the way they are. And I, I just, I give hints. I've had characters completely change genders and readers haven't even noticed because it's not really called out in the books because the characters don't think it's a big deal. I love so it that. just doesn't show that. up. Yeah, I like it too. I love the fact, and I've got characters who, um, one character who had a wife and then later on she had a husband 
you know, and no one even batted an eye about they're like, hey, you met Trevor and you liked him. And she's, yeah, Trevor and I are like are, are going on They're You know, and that's that's just it. That's that's as far as it goes. And then later on, they added, added a woman to the to the mix. And now it's a threesome and no one cares. I love that. I, I think we are getting so many more books now with uh, diverse everything. Even I, I've read completely accidentally, but read two back to back books without realizing and they had uh, polygamy in them and it was completely fine and that's just how it was and that's just their relationships and I loved it because it was com yeah. it wasn't it wasn't the thing about the book and and that's what I I think it well I think there is absolutely a need for own voices and books about um, diversity and that being the the main um, hook in in the in the story but I also mm -hmm. really like it when it's it's almost irrelevant. So, for example, I have a couple of lesbian characters in my young adult fantasy book, and they're not the main characters. They're just characters, and nobody gives a shit. You know, they are just the characters, and it, and it just is the way that it is, and that's the end yeah. of it. And I and I really like that because it normalizes it and doesn't make it a big thing. And obviously, it is important, uh, when, especially when we don't have equal rights, that it is made a big thing. And it is it is a it is important. It is the main aspect of it. But I also just from that normalization perspective, I have this own need just to read yeah. books where it's completely it's, normal. It's so I actually and I find the same thing, like every now and then you encounter it's it's less for for trans people than it is for 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 gay folk. But it's it's really nice just to read a story where there just happens to be a gay character there. Um, and I use the term gay interchangeably yes, you know, for, course, for yeah. gay in this in this context. But it is just and I think there's actually um, I know in the game upcoming game Cyberpunk 2077, there's an option to pick to be a trans character in your character creation is what I've been told. That's which amazing. is really cool. It's like that's just in the game now where you can do that. But I, I agree. Like I kind of feel like any sort of scenario where you've got like, say, um, 15 to 20 characters where you actually get to know them a little bit. If there aren't any LGBT characters, then it's kind of weird. Yeah. So it's like in, a group, in a group of 20 people, there's an LGBT person in that group. Yeah. They may not have told you, but, you know, they're in there. Yeah, Just absolutely. Just based on the percentages. I mean, something people don't quite even realize is there's probably, if you count non-binary people, around 4 to 5% of the population is non-binary or trans, which means like in like a... Um, a group of like if you have a school of 200 people that means there's 10 to 12 people who are literally tr are trans in that school which is quite a few actually in a school of 200 mm. just to sort of think about that in those contexts i've always just from a completely personal perspective i've always found gender difficult to understand because when i think in my head it's it is a non-gendered voice and i don't know if that's the same for other people whether they hear a female voice or a male voice or or a whatever voice but for me it is like it is definitely a non-gendered voice and so i and so so what is it really that i've always had this question of what is it really that makes a woman a woman or makes a man a man and i don't, I don't have the answer to that but i well, I, yeah, I find gender fascinating because of that it is really interesting because people will say, well, you don't, you know, you don't have a vagina, therefore you're not a female. And like, well, there are, there are humans with XX chromosomes who do not have vaginas. What are they? Exactly. You know, a woman, they're like, well, you can't make babies. And like what happens? What about a woman when she gets a hysterectomy or what if a woman's born um, and she's infertile? You know, does that make her less of a woman? If we like, if we like narrow down womanhood to a particular set of functional organs, mm -hmm. you know, or is there more to it than that? Um and it's it, and it's, it turns out we still don't really understand it even at a scientific level, yeah. Because we don't even know for for sure 
if the um, the 45th and 46th chromosomes are the only ones that determine sex. Like we don't know for know sure. That. Yeah, there there are other there are possible other because um, really all it is is it's one particular um, gene inside the Y chromosome that does that performs the switch. But interestingly, sometimes when the when the father's body is making the sperm, that particular gene that is the the testosterone versus um, estrogen switch for the womb um, gets put into an X chromosome instead. So you'll actually have 100% male humans who have XX chromosomes purely because the the father's body made a mistake when it was recombining the genes. Oh my goodness, that is and fascinating. And as it turns out, there's a shockingly large number of people, possibly somewhere between 5 and 10% of the population that does not have standard XXXY chromosomes. Um, and you can have, there's even a place in the Dominican Republic where um, girls turn into boys in puberty. There's a there's a group of, of, of some types, some boys will be born, they have XY chromosomes, but they have a particular resistance to a type, one of the early types of uh, testosterone in the body. And so they look like they have clits, um, and labia until they uh, until they hit um, puberty, and then this other type of testosterone occurs in the human body, and then their clit turns into a penis. Oh my goodness me, I that is mind blowing! So, <gasps> wow. Okay. Yeah, it really is. So, and, even, and the funny thing is that even though the people that live there now understand this, and they think it's some sort of weird dietary thing or something like that that's caused this this abnormality, even though they understand this, they socialize them as girls until they go through puberty. That, it's just what? bizarre. So they they yeah. can actually recognize the gender differences now and know that, like, okay, this this girl will turn into a boy at about age 12, but they still socialize them as girls as they're when they're younger. It's really bizarre. So yeah, this whole gender thing is just like, how does this even work? What are we even doing? That, oh, I, I need to, that, I need to, uh, like, really go and go down a research rabbit hole because that is fascinating. Yeah. There's a there's a National Geographic article from like five or six years ago. I'll dig up the link and send it to you. Thank you. you. It. It's all, all these different scenarios around the world and actually how lots of um, cultures actually have understood multiple genders um, as far as like, you know, behavioral stuff versus just the, the two sexes for a long time. Like Polynesian cultures have always recognized a third gender. Most Native American cultures recognized uh, four genders. Even ancient Hebrew had four genders. Um, and even like uh, shamans in North American Native culture were trans. All shamans yeah. were trans. So it's just like that's what their concept of two-spirited means, that, you, that you'd be trans. Um, not in not in one hundred percent of Native American cultures, but a large number of them. So there's a lot of interesting things where the more you dig into society, you're like, wow, it's in, in history and biology. You're like, this this stuff is nowhere near as clear cut as we thought it was. So yeah, your comment about gender and stuff in the brain is is really interesting. I'm actually one of those people without internal dialogue though, so I don't have a voice at all inside of my head. Oh, 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 oh my goodness me! Of everything you've just said, I think my brain just shattered into five thousand million pieces. <laughs> what? Oh my goodness me! No dialogue. No, I didn't know that. There's a lot. It's, I don't know the exact percentages. I've been trying to find the percentages, but it could be like twenty to thirty percent of the population have no internal monologue. I just I can't I can't get my head around that. What? That's amazing. So how? What? So. <laughs> You're so like, how do you think? Yeah, that is my literal question. How do you think? <laughs> and I'm like, am I? thing is like you've actually got to like think all the words inside your head to think things that sounds so tedious <laughs> yeah i think well. i think mostly in um pictures and colors and concepts That's it's sort of like a shorthand version of thinking that i have yeah i mean 
so I don't, I don't, yeah, so I, I definitely, if I am consciously thinking of a topic, then I will, like, if I'm trying to come to a decision, then I will be talking through the options in my brain. But if it's just, if I'm mindlessly doing a task or something, then, then I may just have pictures. Like, for example, when I write, I don't think words, I see a scene right. and I just but watch a people, movie and some people... write. The, some people are the extreme in those scenarios you described they would see all the words like some people if they think to them, like if i'm laying in bed and i'm thinking to myself i should get coffee i might have a picture of myself getting out of bed and then i might see myself in my mind saying my coffee maker some people will narrate that entire thing in their head to think about getting out of bed to go make coffee so there's you're, you're kind of in the, this happy medium land <laughs> i so the thing that i find absolutely hilarious is that not only do i have a degree in psychology i also have a master's degree in psychology and this never came up <laughs> so <laughs> i was yeah when, I, when someone mentioned this the other day because i knew that my wife does this jill always has her internal dialogue is always yammering in her head and so i knew that she was like this but i didn't know that she actually might be the more common group but I was researching and I could not find a study where someone had worked out the percentages of the population that are like this. Like I couldn't find any information about about internal monologue versus non-internal monologue. No, people. no. I, I, I have a friend who's a clinical psychologist, so I might have to um, ask them. And if I find something, I'll, I'll, I'll let you know and I'll send it to you. <laughs> and we can geek out over it together. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, right. I'm going to round up this um uh, conversation on characters, even though I don't want to, because it's fascinating. We're only on the second question. I know. <laughs> <No. laughs> um, and I will start to um, move us into universe and world building. So you've built an enormous science fiction universe called Aeon 14, um, mm -hmm. with close to, uh, well, you've just told me, close to 100 books. So first of all, before we go into the details of how you did that, can you tell everyone just a little bit about the universe first? So when I, when I started writing this, um, when I decided I wanted to write science fiction, I I, th I really wanted to get it right. I'm, I'm kind of, um, I'm somewhere on the autism spectrum, so I'm sure that's a part of it. Um, where I really like things to be detailed and correct, as correct as possible. But I also recognize you can't make things correct when predicting the future, you know. It's just not not a thing that you can do. So my thought was, like, I want to push this stuff far enough out in the future that anything I decide could be plausible. And I could I could sort of say, like, well, you know, it's, it's 2,000 years in the future, so who really knows how things would go? There could be ups and downs and, and yada, yada, yada. I also wanted to go past the more messy stages of technology. Because I believe that, for example, like the concept of privacy, for example, is actually a new concept um, in the world. And it also still doesn't exist in lots of places of the world. Like um, Eastern Asian uh, societies do not have the same concept of, of privacy that we do in the West. Um, and, and if you think back even to like communities like two or three hundred years ago, the idea that you living in New York in the mid 1800s could have privacy is, is almost ludicrous. Like privacy was basically a privilege of the rich. Who could live in in isolation in isolation as much as possible? But even then, they had their servants and stuff like that, so they really didn't have privacy either. Uh, only only really in the last fifty to seventy years have you been able to exist um, on your own if you chose to, you know, like alone in your house with all of the resources you could have to to survive without having to go and interact with other humans. Um, even if in now, even if you're sick, you could like you could talk to a doctor and stuff like that. So we've, it's a relatively new concept, like the sort of ultra privacy that we think we have. And I think that um, at this point, it's actually a fallacy. I think it's actually already gone. 
and people are sort of like waking up to the fact that there's computers that can predict their thinking based on how they browse across the internet. And that's been in place for like a decade. When you browse the internet, Google actually, Google has this tracking code on so many websites that it follows you across the internet and it knows what you're thinking. And that's how it can serve you the best ads, which I think is great actually, because I love wearing cat suits and I love getting ads for cat suits. I don't want ads for like, I don't know, like golf clubs. Don't advertise golf clubs to me. Advertise cat suits to me. It's great. I think targeted ads are the best thing ever as a consumer because I see all sorts of cool things I want to buy, which is probably terrible actually at the same time because they're really good at manipulating my emotional state as a result. And your bank account, clearly. And my bank account. Oh, yeah, my bank account. Oh, that's terrible. Um, So, but I I thought about like in the future, like we're eventually going to get the internet in our heads. And we're eventually going to get to the point where medical technology is good enough that we're going to have nano uh, bots in our body that are actually going to help us heal from things all the time. But they're clearly going to need to work with some sort of external system to make sure that we stay safe and healthy and all that jazz. So there's going to be like sort of the way that privacy works is going to change in that we're going to actually have to create laws about the sanctity of another human's mind. And that like, okay, even though you can get this information out of a human's mind, it's actually illegal to do so. And they have to build up a whole lot of ethics around it and stuff like that. So I started thinking about like, how will society function? Because I really wanted to think about, as we make all these technological advances, how will humans still function in a way that's recognizably human? And maybe we won't be recognizably human, but you can't tell stories about people that aren't recognizably human to a 21st century audience. No one, no one's going to read a massive series with people that they can't relate to in any way, shape or form. So, so I thought about all of that. And then I thought about like, what it's like to, to be is like say a cyborg and have all this technology integrated in your body. And I want to jump past the messy early kind of nasty phases where it's going to look like bad and go to the a future where it's so seamless and perfect that you could have a person who's half robot and you just can't tell. Um, so that's, that's sort of where I jumped to. And then I, I worked on enough of the science that I was able to create a setting large enough to write any kind of story I ever wanted to write inside this one setting. And then I started writing. And that is a beautiful segue into my next question. Um, so you've built a world where you're able to create multiple spin-offs or multiple series in your universe. So I would, I'm coming towards the end of my first young adult series and I would uh, love to be able to create the same um, universe, I suppose, in which I can have more than one series or multiple books that go beyond uh, just the initial arc. So, um, but usually at the end of a, a series, it brings the world back to a norm, or normality and, and a kind of a finished completeness. I know that's what's going to happen with my young adult series and there is absolutely no way in which I can then continue because there's it's, it's all too closed off essentially. So what advice would you give to somebody who wants to create a universe or a world that can continue beyond the initial series arc? Well, here's the thing to think about. So on planet Earth, um, if I wrote a story about someone going to college on planet earth today and i wanted to write the next i want then i wanted to write a war story i could do that i could write a story about someone going to college on earth today and in the same universe i could fit a war story i could even physically marry someone who has to go to war or they meet someone who's like been drafted or something like that like that's something you could do um i could write a story where aliens show up on planet earth and it could be in the same setting as my young adult story i wrote about someone being in college so if you think about a universe and a world that when you're doing your world building, think about it like writing about modern day Earth. You could fit any story you can imagine into modern day Earth or almost any story. I'm sure there's some that wouldn't quite fit because the history might have to get skewed 
to fit certain stories. So maybe you couldn't write the exact plot that you wanted to write, but you could write that sort of story with certain themes or characters or elements or something like that. Um, or I mean, heck, you could like even look at Guardians of the Galaxy. They took like a guy from the 1980s and they put him on a starship for the last 20 years, gallivanting across the universe, listening to 80s tunes. Like they were able to take a character, that character, and, and do that with him. Um, now, granted, if you wrote like a cozy mystery cozy romance mystery story and you took the main character and suddenly tried to turn them into star lord your readers might not follow along with that particular adventure but um i sort of use it as an example to show that like you possibly depending on what you want to write next you could fit anything into any world um it just might take a little bit more shoehorning than than, than one wants to do and maybe i guess i guess what i'm saying is i can't see a way of wrapping things up enough that you couldn't actually put another story into it um, I guess, but I guess, for example, if you said you wanted to write a magical story where like, there's never been any problems with magic ever. It's always worked perfectly and everything's been hunky dory, except for this one time every thousand years where this one demon shows up and causes a problem. And then you want to have like 30 more demons show up across 30 more series. You're like, ah, it's getting to be kind of a stretch at this point. Hmm. Um, so, so I guess the, the, the way to solve that is to always leave hints and hooks as you're writing that there's other stuff going on. Um, that that like if you have one particular demon rising you're like well thank goodness that you know we managed to stop the last 47 but this one seems extra tricky or something like that like leave hints that that shit goes sideways frequently um and that's going to give you the opportunity to write more stories where shit can go sideways and that's kind of what i did because i want to write about a truly galactic sized scenario and there are millions of settled planets out there. So I made sure to mention the whole time that like, there are millions of planets. And as this particular war unfolds, the aftershocks are going to ripple out for decades um, to, to other star systems. So I basically have been telling the readers that I could like write anything happening in a million different places that could happen like over the next several decades. And it will fit within the story that I wrote. Yeah, my my brain is going 5,000 miles per hour because I'm like simultaneously analysing what I did um, on what I'm doing with my young adult series and then also at the same time analysing. Um, so whilst I'm finishing off that series, I'm building this new series um, <clears throat> that's definitely adult because I just need to swear a bit more. Um, and <laughs> and um, go on, sorry. I was going to say that probably might be maybe something that would be more of a barrier if you were to change the tone of a story it might be more of a problem than changing your setting or your plot than anything else. Like if you were to write like YA um, or, or, or even younger and then like their next book in the universe is, has erotica in it, that may not work very well at all. That's more of a reader audience thing. Yeah. And so there's, this is half my problem with the young adult series is she started out at 17 and now she's approaching 19 and actually she's now really an adult and yes, okay, you could say it's new adult, but it's kind of a problem because the book now spans into adulthood and actually I, I much prefer writing adult because you can just write whatever the fuck you want and you're not going to get in trouble with any tropes or anything. So yes, yeah, so I'm writing, I'm de developing a series called Murdering Magicians, which um, is the one that I want to be a continuous series. And um, yeah, so this is that, it was a completely selfish question. Um... <laughs> <laughs> you know, something that you might want to think about doing is, could you write your new series in a way that your old series fits into the universe? And, and you could then direct readers... So instead of trying to direct YA readers into your adult series, you could oftentimes have adult readers go read the YA series that fits in the same universe. Well, I might do some nods, but I I almost want a different magic system. And so I think it would be okay. hard to then blend blend the two. Um, but, but you have definitely 
challenged me uh, to think about the, whether or not I could do more even in my first series anyway. So um, yeah, I'm definitely going to go away and have another think with dialogue in my brain <laughs> um, <laughs> and, and see what I can come up with. Um, Okay, another question from a patron. How do you map and keep all of the details straight in your absolutely colossal universe? People hate this answer. It's all just in my head. No! No, don't say that! Oh my There's, actual I have no, god. I, I wish I had started writing like a wiki when I first started out, but I didn't. And yeah, so it's all in my head. It's No, no I did... Yeah, I did one thing. Well, I mean... I should say that some of my early books had like um, some glossaries and stuff like that. But that was like, I think I stopped. I think the last glossary I did was in the seventh or eighth book I wrote. Maybe like the 10th, maybe like a couple here and there after had some glossary type things in them. But the vast majority of the books have like have nothing. Um, but the, the and, I, and there was big, maybe like three or four broad documents that I wrote back in night in 2017 that have some more information as well. But the thing I did do that saves my bacon is every one of my chapters has a heading that has a date um, and, and a, a region and a location in it. So every single every single chapter, it's really easy to find the date. See, like typically like the starship name or the station name or the planet or and where they are. So, so all the names are always spelled out. So it's so like, oh, it was that time when they were on Thebes. What was that place called? Or what ship were they on? You even just find the chapter and the chapter heading will tell you what ship they were on or something like that. That is amazing. So that's been my, yeah, so that's probably the thing, the crutch that's gotten me through. I also have a really good memory, but I'm getting older now, so I probably need to start writing things down because that's not going to last forever. Yeah, see, I don't have a good memory and I had to, um, I, I almost immediately got into trouble when I started writing my second book and was like, yeah, this shit is not going to fly. I'm going to have, so I, I, I wonder if I can show you, I had to go through, oh no, I've only got one of my books. I had to go through my book. Every sticky tab is something I'd forgotten. Oh my God. <laughs> so I, I literally... There's so, like 30 or 40 sticky tabs at least. And that might oh, be at least. That is definitely an underestimation. Yeah. And so I created this 30-page Bible. Um, I, ca I call it my book Bible now uh, because I literally, ha I have to have names, dates, locations, capitalizations, spellings, uh, laws, because I just created this overly complex world. I'm not doing that again. And um, right. there's like laws and sub-laws and oh my goodness. So yeah, but I uh, lessons learned. <laughs> There are a lot of tricks um, to not get yourself in trouble when you're doing this, when you're doing something big like this, and that's to be as inspecific as possible. Yeah. Um, so that means like if, if you're going to say like, if, if you could say, well, five days ago, X, Y, Z happened, you could say about a week. And then, and then in the future, you'll have, you can just say like, oh, well, you know, it would be a couple of weeks back. Be like in specific like that, like leverage those terms you can use where you're not giving like really hyper specific details because then you don't have to be specific in the future because the reader's not going to remember a specific date either. Mm. Um, and I actually, I don't name characters. Well, actually, I name characters a lot because it's just useful when you're in dialogue and in tagging and whatnot. But I don't describe their features. Like most of my characters, you don't know what color hair they have. You don't know what color eyes they have. Um, you don't know what they're ever what they're wearing or anything like that, um, which makes us. I don't remember next time I describe them. I just say the character's name. Well, so, so those I, are clutch. I think, writing massive series. Yeah, and I think that's really interesting. So the the book I mentioned I'm in launch with is called The Anatomy of Prose, and one of the things that I mention in there is that actually most readers 
don't know the colour of your character's eyes or the colour of their hair anyway, because that's not what a reader remembers. What a reader remembers is A, how a character made them feel, and B, the thing that's unique about them or the impression that they left on another character. And so yeah. uh, in one of the sections uh, where I'm talking about um, how how you introduce your characters, I'm like, yeah, sure, you, you can name, you know, what their hair colour is like or what their eye colour is like or how to, you know, whatever. But actually, that's not the important thing to describe. The important thing to describe is perhaps a quirk or, you know, that memorable thing or, or the impact that they then have on your protagonist, because that is how your reader will remember them anyway. Yeah. Um, yeah, like I have this one character named Cheeky and Cheeky hates wearing clothing because she thinks clothing is unevolved. She's like, I live on a starship where it's temperature controlled. And I have nanobots in my skin that keeps it all protected and safe and everything like that. Why would I wear clothing? You're stupid. So Cheeky's always naked. I love um, it. But she loves heels. So she's naked in high heels. Um, so clearly everybody remembers that Cheeky's naked. Uh, people may not even remember she's blonde, but they know she's naked. <laughs> I love that. She's my kind of girl. I'm a heel girl. Um, <clears throat> um, okay, so your 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 universe has multiple writers working in it. Um, so mm -hmm. do you have any tips for collaboration? I just took a drink and now I'm going to die. <laughs> Pardon me. Um, well, I think there's something that's really important to note is that collaborating with other authors doesn't speed you up. It doesn't make your writing process go faster. I would actually say that in most cases, it's slower than writing a book solo. Um, and I would also say that readers are less likely to buy a book with two author names on it than they are to buy a book with one author name on it. So it's not a way to make more money either. <clears throat> um, and you can see this in evidence by the fact that a lot of really well done collaborative books by multiple authors only have one name. They make up a fake name that represents the both of them. Um, like a popular one is the Expanse series, which has a TV show and it's written by James S.A. Corey, which is actually two guys. Um, but they picked a, a single singular name for that and lots of books that um, are written by multiple authors actually end up with, with just one name on the cover. Um, that's much more popular in TradPub because in TradPub it's just about the publisher trying to make money, but indies don't like to do that because we want to make money and we want to have it build on our name. Um, for me, what I use co-authors for two things. One is that, um, and I should say that now that with some of my co-authors we're like five or six, seven, eight books in, it is getting faster. But um, but I still feel like I spend, even though I, I might do like 20% of the work, I still spend 70% of the time it would take me to write a full novel. Um, cause I, cause I'm, I have to make sure everything fits in the universe and blends well and doesn't screw up anything else. Cause they, cause this new writer may not, this one writer may not know what someone else is writing at the same time. I have to make sure there aren't contradictions and stuff. So I have to pay a lot of attention to what's being written. Um, but very early on when I started making this massive story, I realized that if I wrote the whole thing, it'd be one note. It would be, it would represent my way of thinking and my viewpoints on the world, but that's not, that's not big enough for a universe. I need more people involved. So that's one of the big reasons why I did it. Another reason is that um, sometimes the well is dry and there's just no story coming out and having a co-author to work with can really help because they might not, they might have some ideas that spur you again to start getting creative and whatnot. So, um, so I think the first thing is think about your expectations and where the benefits really lie. The benefits rely on creating a more diverse story and helping out if you're, if you're having hitting a dry spell um, and that's why I did it. The other thing is if, if you're creating something like if it's your universe and you're inviting other authors into it, I think you make to make it very clear that you have the final say and that um, 
you know that that you will that at the end of the day you're going to make you're going to go over top and make sure everything's okay i recommend against using tracked changes for that um, it just invites debate about every single comma and makes the process go a lot longer what i do with my co-authors is i'll just flat out right over top without track changes and i'll make some notes if i drastically changed large sections like i had to rewrite all of this for this these reasons let me know what you think um <clears throat> And maybe if someone's like using a particular turn of phrase too much or something like that, I might mention like, hey, you, you, you're doing this a lot. You might want to watch it just to make fewer edits for the editor in the future. Um, so that's one way to do it. The other way is writing the way where you do alternate chapters where I write one POV and the other co-author writes another POV. Um, those ones take a little bit longer to get going. But once they get going, they actually move pretty fast. And it's really fun because you're like, what's happening next? And you're like all excited, like you're reading the book for the first time, and then you get to get to your part and write it. Um, and we usually, when, when I have one co-author, I do that with a lot. And we're at the point now where we'll get about, it'll take us like a month to get halfway through a book. And then we'll wrap the book up in like a week after that. Because we're just like rapid firing it back and forth to each other just, just to get it done because it's really exciting. So um, I think so. I think there's there's a lot of different ways you can do it. And I, I guess the big thing I would, I would recommend to folks is, is don't think of it as a thing that's going to like launch your career or or get more sales than a standalone book because they they typically won't. It's very rare that they actually do better than if you're just on a standalone book on your own. But you'll probably grow as a writer. Um, you might grow some new readers from that other author that you didn't have before, and it's, it might help you through a dry spell as well. Amazing. Thank you. Okay, my favorite question of the podcast. This... We're, all, we're already here. I know, I know. Um, this is the Rebel Author Podcast. So tell me about a time you unleashed your inner rebel. Well, I'm not going to go with being transgender because I feel like that one's too obvious. Um, I think that one time I really like went against the flow is is in the third series that I did. So I've back when, when I first started writing science fiction novels, all indie authors had starships on their covers. Um, it was just for, for science fiction. It was just they all ran big starships. And um, and I was like, well, I grew up reading Anne McCaffrey and other people like that who always had characters on the cover. So I went with character covers. And when my, my third series came out, I'm like, I'm writing about Jessica. Jessica has purple skin. She wears a purple cat suit. And she's she's a girly girl, even though she's like, like a bad starship captain. So I'm going to have a white, purple and pink um, series cover for, for these books. And I was kind of terrified because one of the things that happens when you're trans and you're in the closet is you're constantly trying, like, am I doing things that are accidentally outing myself? Um, so you know, you got to be careful. I'm sure when you're when you're lesbian, you're feeling the same thing a lot too before you come out. Like, am I outing myself? You know, I have to be careful that no one knows these things about me. And you actually swing the other way. That's why there's this whole thing where dost thou protest too much sort of comes into play because you're you're really hiding, actively hiding who you are. Um, so anyway, like, I was terrified of doing this. I'm like, nope, this is true to the character. The character would do this. Um, this is what she would look like, and it's going to stand out. I'm going to go for it, and and it did all of those things. Actually, it worked really well. Oh, and I did put a naked woman on the cover of a book too, um, so I guess I did that as well. That's a pretty rebellious thing to do. But Facebook, well, I just, you're not really allowed to use covers anyway to advertise on Facebook, but uh, I bet they wouldn't have uh, appreciated that. <laughs> they they approved it on AMS. No. Oh my goodness me, that's amazing. Yeah, her skin is red. That was the only way I think I got away with it. But she's like completely naked, like breasts and everything. It's just, I, I as a cat. You yeah, know, kitty. Cat? I can see the kitty. Oh. <laughs> I, I, so for everybody listening, you obviously cannot see the cat, but I am like, oh, I love, I really love cats. I'm trying 
very hard to persuade my wife to let me uh, get a cat when we move house. She's she's more of a dog person. Oh, I'm literally I'm melting. So basically, right no, so what happened, we had two, we had a Bengal and we had a tabby uh, cross Bengal and um, I was heavily pregnant and a month before I gave birth, the, um, the, the, the tabby uh, vanished and it broke my heart oh. and then unfortunately the bengal had to be put down about three weeks later and i i i was just absolutely broken having lost them both in in within a, the space of a month and so we both vowed we wouldn't then have pets for a while um and because we uh, are renting we just decided not to have them but we've just brought a house so i'm now trying to persuade my wife let me get a cat and <laughs> she's adamant that I we're not like... having them <laughs> I really feel like a home is on a home without a cat. I know, exactly. And we're like, my my great-grandmother had 300. So we, like, it, it is literally inbred wow. for oh. us. Yeah, and one rooster, which ruled all of the all of the cats as well. It's a, it's a very, it's a, basically a family <laughs> legend. But um, yeah, it is oh true. God, that sounds amazing. Yeah, people would drop boxes I... of kittens on her doorstep and she wouldn't she wouldn't let them go because she she felt so bad and so she would just bring them in and look after them and house them and and even so her daughter my grandmother feeds street cats in israel so she feeds like 30 street cats in israel just so we're all we are literally all crazy cat people um so yeah that's amazing i, um, found, I saw some, some of these really funny memes when the when the when the quarantine started where it's like it's like a cat like it's like you know, stay-at-home order, day number 7,432. Know? Like, what are the humans doing? Why are yeah, they yeah. here with me all the time? I've seen a few of those. I love them. My son also has inherited the uh, crazy cat gene as well. Bless him. Um, okay, tell oh, listeners where they can find out more about you and your books. Certainly. So they can find out more about, about my books at aeon14.com. It's A-E-O-N-14.com. Um, and they can also look for the Aeon14 fan group on facebook and that's a great place if you want to know where to start the fans are always really happy to help with like what you what because there's lots of different types of stories that they can be like what kind of story do you like and what do you like to read and they'll all start arguing with each other and it's great fun um so you can find out that way and then also i write books on facebook advertising and other author help things so if any authors would like to to learn anything about the process they can go to the writingwives.com Ta-da! It's the book. Yes, Yay! although the readers can't, the viewers, the listeners can't see that. No, they but, can't. <laughs> um, yeah, thewritingwives.com, the um, and we have two books out: "Help My Facebook Ads Suck," the second edition, and "Help My Launch Plan Sucks." And you can actually get the ebook version of the Facebook Ads book for free, and then just pay us what you think it's worth. So, um, we just like helping authors and helping other people do well. Amazing. Thank you so much. And I loved the first um, Facebook Ads book, which is why I then brought the second one. But I, I pretty much try where possible to read paperbacks because i'm on screens all day uh, so i always buy them mm -hmm. that's why i was waving the paperback for those listeners who can't hear um <laughs> thank you so much for your time today and thank you to everybody listening and also thank you to all my patrons if you would like to get early access to all of the episodes then you can do so by visiting patreon.com forward slash sasha black I'm Sasha Black, you are listening to Mallory Cooper, and this was the Rebel Author Podcast.
Next week, I have an extra super special episode for you because I am going to be talking to my very own Papa Bear. Yes, my dad is coming on the show and we are going to be talking all about how to build a successful seven-figure company. Now, caveat to this, I have mentioned a few times on here that I am interested in taking lessons from other industries and bringing them into my fiction and non-fiction business, my writing business, essentially, and learning, uh, I guess, the tactics, strategies, and methods that other companies use and, and how I can improve my own company to do that. So I'm hoping that the episodes that I do with other business people will help you guys to do the same things when I reflect on the lessons learned. So yes, next week is going to be quite the episode. Uh, So I look forward to um, podcasting with you then. Ciao for now. Don't forget to tune in and subscribe on your podcatcher. And when you have a moment, please leave a review.